It's uh, Halloween, um, which is fun and exciting, which really means um, that you are here at the 915 service. Um, and last night was Saturday night, which means Saturday night was a big night for a lot of college folks. I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to talk about which direction sinful or holy um, last night was, but I want you to know that you are here, and so you are amongst the brethren and the brethrette of you know, the, the church and the people of God. Um, so that to say, next week when you show up, and there's a lot more people here at the 915, you look at them, and you just go, you sinner, okay? Just want you to know that's okay. Just kidding. Um, man, we're in a series in Revelation, and I'm going to pray for us as we get cracking this morning. Jesus, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come together as a church, as a group of people, as a body of you. And God, I pray that as you um, speak to us through your word, we would be open to hear it wherever we are in our walk and our relationship with you. For those of us who walked in the door, and it's our first time to church in a long time, perhaps it's our it's our first time in a long time and we're willing to give it one more shot because we've walked away from our faith or the first time ever. And for the person who has been faithfully walking with you for a long time, knowing you for a long time, I pray that as your word does, it would speak directly to us and to our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I figured, man, what should we talk about on Halloween? Um, what's like the, the most fun version of Christian scary stuff we could talk about? Persecution. So that's what we're going to talk about on Halloween, okay? Um, and, I, and I say that in jest because, I mean, I've been like thinking about this and praying about this all week in, in, in study, and it's difficult because um, there's one level or expression of Christianity, and we would talk about persecution in such a way that we would say, man, uh, perhaps we should be a little bit more convicted that we don't face a higher sense of persecution. But the problem is, is it's like, you know, Talking people into doing things that would warrant and elicit persecution is like talking you into doing something that would warrant getting punched in the face, you know? It's like things that I've never told my kid. Walk up to that kid, tell him, I hate you, punch me in the face, right? And all of a sudden he gets punched in the face and I'm like, good job, buddy, right? Um, it, it, it's a little bit odd in terms of the dynamic. And truthfully, um, what I want to do today is talk a little bit about the church of Smyrna, um, what they were facing, why they were facing it, how we face a modern context, but what Jesus says into that. Because I think that there's some things underneath persecution um, that are kind of hidden, and, and I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a second. But I think that there are some things where if we can actually unlock what's happening underneath the surface, we have this, this base level hesitancy to live a life worthy of the gospel in such a way that it would elicit pushback. But I think underneath that, there's actually something deeper besides just hesitancy. Now, again, if you were familiar, if you were here last week, the book of Revelation can get kind of a crazy rap because at times it, it draws on a type of literature that we're not terribly familiar with. We don't read a lot. It's called apocalyptic literature. It has its own set of imagery, its own set of thoughts, its own set of tradition that it draws from. And so um, for you to try to uh, just jump into it. it would be like the first time maybe you tried to read Shakespeare. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of words and a bunch of thoughts and a bunch of phrases that you just think, Man, that's too many these and thous, and I have no clue what you're talking about, oh, Romeo, right? Um, but in Revelation, it kind of takes the same type of a, a thought, and in Revelation 1, or apocalyptic literature, in Revelation 1, John, who is one of Jesus' disciples, one of his closest disciples, who is actually at this point the last living disciple, he had been exiled to this island called Patmos, um, after being beaten multiple times, after at one point, again, he was, he was uh, boiled in a vat of oil, and he didn't die, 
And so the church just basically showed that, you know, Rome just basically said, okay, you got to go somewhere else. And so they exiled him to Patmos. And while he was there, he has this vision. He sees Jesus, and Jesus says, write this stuff down. This is a letter, or these are letters to seven churches around Asia Minor. What's interesting about that, and we said this last week, but I just find this fascinating. When Jesus was on the planet, when Jesus walked and talked to his disciples, he was speaking to individuals. He was speaking to individuals. It had implications for the institution of the church that would be to come. But this is the very first time that we have Jesus expressly addressing an institution in the direction of the institution, not just simply the individual, which is huge for us, right? Because what we have is a lot of the expressions of our faith, the individual expressions of our faith. But when we get together, we tend to have some behaviors, some attitudes, some things to be encouraged, and some things to be corrected. And so Jesus speaks to the group of individuals, which we would call the institution of the local expression of church in these cities. And in four of them, it's a mixed bag. It's a, here's some positive, here's a negative. We read one of those last week. Two of them are all positive, and one of them is all negative. We're going to get to that. It's going to be a heck of a week, right? So in this one particular one that we're going to read, it's this church called Smyrna. Smyrna is one of the two that has um, only positive things to say. And here's what you need to know. Today, Smyrna is the only place, it's the only church that still has an active church in the area. Of all of the seven letters of Revelation, this one church, which is the, the shortest letter we have, but this one church is the only church that actually survived. Which means if we can study their roots, there's a lot to say to us today. So here's how he starts it in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, we talked about that last, that last week, angel uh, could mean angel, it could mean messenger, it could mean elder. There's a bunch of different kind of translations and things, but this was written to a leader to be kind of dispersed and absorbed by the entirety of the church. So to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, in each of these letters, Jesus describes himself a different way, oftentimes in way that, ways that are going to be helpful for the church. So Jesus starts off by saying, hey, I am the first and the last. I have the bookends on this whole thing. I am an eternal God. I am the first of the first, and I am the last. And I died and I rose from the dead. Here's why that's important. Because to a church getting persecuted, you want to know God's in control. Right? You don't want to know that God's just like this God that's up in heaven like, I hope this works out. I don't know, it's a 50-50 shot. If only I had more control as God. He looks and he says, hey, I am first, I am last, I died, I've overcome death, not even death can hold me, and that's going to be important because some of you, he's going to say, are going to die. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He says, I know your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, though you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Now, let me, there's, there's a bunch of like really, really important things in this. So we're going to nerd out a little bit over the actual text, and then we're going to talk about our lives here in, in a few minutes from now. Um, he starts and he says, he says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, though you are rich. Um, it's an interesting contrast between this church and the church we're going to read at the end called Laodicea, because Laodicea was a church that they were rich, but really they didn't realize they were poor, destitute, and nothing. 
They were empty inside as a church. So Jesus looks at Smyrna and says, hey, I know, I know your tribulation. I know the pressure that you're facing. I know the persecution that you're facing. And I know your poverty, um, even though you're rich. Now, here's what was interesting. Smyrna was about 35 miles north of Ephesus. And Smyrna was a place that was kind of known for their myrrh, their myrrh industry. Um, Smyrna was a very rich town, a very affluent town. But the Christians faced economic persecution in their city. That is to say, because of the fact that they knew, loved, and believed in Jesus, they faced economic hardships because of it. And Jesus looks at them and says, hey, I want you to know. I know this might be difficult for you. I know this might be difficult for you. But I want you to know that though it seems like on the surface you're poor, man, you actually have life. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you've seen this. You've seen perhaps you went because you thought you were going to bring the gospel to a group of people, and you went to the group of people who you were going to bring the gospel to, they already knew Jesus, and you came back from a trip and thought, man, they had nothing, but they had so much joy. They had, so, they had nothing, but it seems like their faith is so rich. They had nothing, and it seemed like they were so, we don't have another word to say, so we just say, it seems like they were so happy. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, because we still think that money brings us happiness. So he looks at him and he says, I know that you're poor, but you've got to experience this. The richness that you have in Jesus is irreplaceable. The boldness that you have in Jesus is irreplaceable. That those things are just a, a mild derivative form of the purpose that God was supposed to be at the center of our lives. And he says, furthermore, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. And he says these really, really strong words. He says, but they are a synagogue of Satan. That's like the worst thing that Jesus could possibly say about us, right? Like, I want you to remember, like, I want you to imagine Jesus is like, how would I describe you? Uh, you're like, you're a lot like a synagogue of Satan. It's like, that's, that's tough. Now, here's what you need to know about Jesus. Obviously, Jesus isn't just like, man, how can, I just, how can I just rail on these people? I'm trying to be, you know, mean. I'm trying to be, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to be condescending and direct. So I'm just going to call you guys a synagogue of Satan. Here's what actually happened. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are the Jews. Now, let me unpack this. The Jews had no ability to actually persecute the Christians. The Jews only had the ability to try to leverage Rome for the persecution of the Christians. And what the Jews would oftentimes do was to tell half-truths to slander and to deceive the Roman Empire or the Roman government to say that the Christians are, in fact, dangerous. Now, the main thing that Satan does to us is to deceive us. Take any version of sin, and almost every version of sin is something God created and Satan distorted. And so what we look at is he's not just saying, hey, well, you know, how can, I, how can I just be really derogatory and condescending to these people? He says, no, no, no. What they're doing is these people are misrepresenting who you are. If you look in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is at Thessalonica. In fact, that happens a number of times in the book of Acts. Paul's in Thessalonica preaching the gospel, making Jesus accessible to folks. And as he's preaching the gospel, the people at Thessalonica, they just get all up in arms. In fact, the Jews specifically get all up in arms about this. As they get all up in arms about this, they basically go to the Roman authorities and say, hey, look, these are the people that have been preaching the gospel true and stirring up trouble. 
not true all over the world. So Thessalonican uh, you know, authorities, you guys ought to do something about it. You guys ought to do something about it. So they did, and they kicked him out. Now, this is the underneath the surface part. What actually happens, and what's fascinating, is that when the gospel is spread and persecution happens, almost always the mechanism that that persecution is used to leverage is not to simply say that we disagree. It's to say that we disagree, and our disagreement on your side is dangerous. Look, we gotta, we got we to squash this whole Christianity thing, because if we don't squash this whole Christianity thing, then, then you know, it's just going to become disruptive like it is everywhere else, which was not true. They'd preach the gospel, yes. It would influence people's lives, yes. Disruptive, no. Because we serve the God who died for his enemies. So when there's persecution, there's oftentimes deception that the disagreement is dangerous. About two years ago, I gave a sermon for the first time that was along those lines. that said, you know, for the first time, I think, in our culture, in our history, in the history of our nation, we're asking this question, is God still good? Is God still good? And the reason is, is because some of the thoughts of Christianity create this sense of exclusivity. The central tenet of Christianity is to say that I know that innately I'm not good enough. And by I'm not good enough, what I really mean is I'm not perfect enough because God in his holiness is perfect. And in his perfection, there can be no sin. God knew that, saw that, and didn't expect us to be perfect, but actually did the opposite. What he did was he sent his son to die for us, right? And so what we know is that the core tenet of the gospel is I am fundamentally flawed. I can do good, sure. You can do good, sure. And subjective to one another, we can do good, wonderful. But at the core of what our faith is, this is this belief that I need a savior, that the reason, in fact, the entire morality of the Old Testament existed, the law of the Old Testament existed, was to prove to us that we, in fact, need and needed a Savior, and still do. And because of that, there can be a narrative that is kind of put out to say that because you believe this, and because of all of the implications of that belief, your belief is not just a belief, your belief is, in fact, dangerous. And granted... To be fair, in Christians, as Christians throughout history, historically, we have given people plenty of reason to believe that, right? It's not like something where we're like, yeah, we're just going to forget like the Crusades never happened, you know? whole Spanish Armada, you know what I mean? We're just going to pretend like, no, no, no. Like we've given, like that's our, in a lot of ways, that's our fault, to be fair. But nonetheless, it's the same spirit, it's the same narrative, it's the same spin, that your disagreements are not simply disagreements. Your disagreements are, in fact, dangerous. And here's what I think is fascinating. In fact, I was listening to, um, this was from a lecture or kind of a discussion panel about 15 years ago. There's uh, some of you know a pastor named Tim Keller. And Keller was on the um, stage with two other professors from Columbia. And they were talking about exclusive religion in a pluralistic world. Exclusive religion in a pluralistic world. Um, and it's a really good thing. You can find it on I don't know, Vivio, I think, something like that. Um, well, what's interesting about it is that the professor from, from Columbia actually had this beautiful point. 
As Tim began to explain and unpack some things about Christianity, he said this. He said, the thing about Christianity is Christianity is unique in how it, it, it is malleable and transferable to different people in different places in different cultures, the level of accessibility of the, of the gospel. If you look at just simply the demographic center of where religions started and where they are, almost every religion has started in a place, and its demographic center is still in that place. Right? So you look at... Um, Gosh, you look at, you know, Hinduism, and it was kind of started in India, and still the demographic core is there. You look at, you know, Islam, and it was the Middle East, and it's still there. And, and you look at Christianity, and it started off as a, you know, kind of a Roman thing, and then it moved to a Greek thing, and then it moved to an Eastern European thing, and then a Northern European thing, and then it moved to a North American thing. And now in its current state, the demographic center is kind of somewhere hovering around uh, uh, a little bit of Asia, South America, and um, and Africa is kind of where, you know, the, the demographic core and center of Christianity is now. And here's, here's what's important about that. And this is, what's, this is what's interesting. He made this point. It's not the exclusivity of Christianity that makes it difficult. It's actually the opposite. It's the universality of Christianity that makes it difficult. He said, I want you to imagine this. And this was a Jewish man speaking from his um, experience. He was, he's, he's an ethnic Jew. And... Um, what he said was, you know, for us, basically, uh, there's, there's an innate sense of exclusivity. There's an innate sense that, like, we believe that, you know, our ethnic Judaism is our ethnic Judaism, and everybody else has a basically Gentile Judaism. So this is for us, and everything else is for that. So it doesn't create a sense of tension, because you functionally, what I have is inaccessible to you, right? What I have, you can't have, and so we can go to lunch, we can do deals, we can be friends, we can be neighbors, and there's never a point, because the level of exclusivity makes it such that I'm never going to try to share or impose or give thoughts towards something that's accessible to you. So the problem is, is Christianity, the thing that makes it so difficult and persecutable is actually the opposite, not that it's exclusive, but the universality of it. Think about that. Because we're saying this is for everybody. And it's eminently accessible. You actually don't have to do anything to earn your way into God's good graces. You simply place your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus. And how that's met often is to say that that thought and the derivative implications of that thought are actually destructive. And I just think it's fascinating. Because Smyrna, I mean, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is writing to the church that's going through the same things that we're going through today. And so this is what he says to this church. This is the first thing that he tells them to do besides the fact that he knows. He says, I know that your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, the slanders of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. I love how he says this next thing. Because he says, okay, here's Christians. I want you to stop being afraid. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death. It's like, Jesus, what? Like, dude, you just said don't be afraid. And then you just said after that, like, oh, by the way, they're going to throw you in prison and you, you might die. It's like, Jesus, those are the most, like, if you're trying to comfort me, that's not the best way possible, Right? That's not the best, like, you know, it's a comfort pillow of, 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 of information that you could give us to say, oh, yeah, hey, by the way, you're going to face persecution. Hey, don't be afraid. You're just going to get thrown in jail and die. It's like, oh, thanks. Let's pray. You know, Jesus, thank you for you know, persecution and death. 
But what I think is interesting about this, and this is what I think is fascinating, because I do think that's, he doesn't say that there is nothing to be afraid of, which is important. In fact, he leads this whole thing off. His very first two words to the church after he describes who he is in verse 9, he says, I know, I know, which is massive because one of the most helpful and important things that we can have when we are going through something, when we are facing some type of external pressure, some type of external um, persecution because of our faith is simply to know that God knows and that God's in control. He says, I know, and I know it might hurt. I know it might be painful, and I get that. But here's what I want you to know. Do not be afraid. Not that there is nothing to be afraid of, but don't let what is possible to be afraid of deter you from what I have called you to do. Do not be afraid. And again, right now, that kind of seems incredibly idealistic. Like, oh, yeah, don't be afraid about dying. Only the worst possible thing that could happen on planet Earth, right? Like, just don't be afraid of that. And here's how he, here's how he continues on, and it's going to give some, some roundness to it. He says, don't be afraid. You can be thrown into prison or tested for your 10 days. You can be put in tribulation. He says, be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. He says, be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. And here's how that makes sense. For us. There is something to be afraid of, but we can overcome that fear, not be inhibited by that fear because of the fact that what we have to look forward to in pressing through the current fear is something much greater, much longer. Because we need to know this, the thing that we fear, what drives your fear, what drives my fear, drives your life. It's just that simple. What drives your fear drives your life. What drives your fear drives your life. What controls your fear controls your life. What is the thing that has the steering wheel of fear in your life? It has the steering wheel of our lives as a whole. And he said, I, I, I see that and I know that, but I want you to first fear me the most. Fear me as God the most. Respect me as God the most. And I know that's going to be tough, but I want you to be able to process that and push through it. Because what's on the other side of it is much, much better. I'll tell you a quick story about this um, in, in a way that I think is going to hopefully shed some light on, on what I think God's asking us to do. So yesterday, um, well, we were, so we had our, my little guy Rhodes, he's four, um, and he had a golf tournament. And it was, it was awesome. Like he was just up there, he was having a blast. Well, he wasn't having a blast at first. Um, but he's been talking about this for like, weeks if not months at this point like since the day we signed him up every day he's like dad it's today golf tournament day dad is today it you know and so he's just like hyped about this golf tournament. we get in the in the, in the, in the truck to go to the golf tournament um, that he's going to play and he's like dad like he knows it's today he's like dad are we going to the tournament now i'm like yes dude of course we've been talking about this for a long time we've been getting ready for it now uh here's a couple things you need to know he's four um you might have to be six to actually officially register online and so I just pray for my salvation because he might have got his, his birthday and his sister's birthday confused um, on the sign-up sheet. <laughs> so, you know, grace covers all, you know. Anyway, so we show up, and they're, they're awesome about it, and they know, you know, he's, he's younger. And, and now he's competing against kids because some people are like, oh, man, they have golf tournaments for kids that young. No, ours does. Um, and so... Almost every kid there um, is older than him. In fact, every kid there is older than him. The youngest kid, now he is, 
to put it in, in kind of school terms, because a lot of you us will get that, um, he just started VPK in August. He's facing one third grader and two fourth graders, right? And I'm talking about my little dude can stroke, all right? So a lot of you are like, oh, my gosh, you know. Now, this is his first term. Let me tell you the end of it, okay? The end of it was the winner ended up shooting a 44. He shot a 51. I'm like, my dude, you know. He lost to, the, to a kid that's like, dude, you're about to hit puberty, right? He's like, <laughs> so cute. At the end of it, he's like, like all right, sign the scorecard. He's like, R. <laughs> It's like, what's next? You know, I'm like, H, his little S, it's like, I'm like, he, he starts all his letters in the wrong place, but he kind of gets it right, you know, super cute. And so, you know, we kept the scorecard. Um, but what happened was, and what happened was, is, so he's been getting ready for this. He's got his own little coach, so I don't have to be a dad coach, so I don't make it terribly unfun for him. I can just cheerlead, but I'm his caddy, you know, so we're talking. We're talking about, you know, getting into the, into the zone, and, and, and it's, you know, pre, and he's hitting some balls, and he's, you know, putting. Well, then we get to the first tee, and the first tee is about halfway up the fairway, and what we didn't anticipate was the fact that this was like, this was a real thing, which sounds obvious, but we've got Rhodes and the one other little kid he's playing with who was so sweet and so kind to Rhodes. And we've got parents and grandparents for our group. There's another group behind them with all their parents and grandparents, plus a starter who's announcing his name. There's like 30 people on the tee box. You ever play golf? Like, you don't like when another group's watching you? Wait till be four years old, half the age of everybody else, and all of a sudden be on the tee, and they say, now playing from Tallahassee, Florida, Rhodes Kempfer, right? And everybody's like, yeah! And let me tell you, this little dude crumbled. I'm talking 20 minutes on the tee box. And he's sitting there, and he just, he was excited until all of a sudden he looked around, and everybody's clapping. He's looking at this, like, line of golf carts and people, and he's like, I didn't realize I was already Tiger Woods, you know? I thought I would get there. I just didn't know, you know, sanctification worked that quickly in my life. And so for 20 minutes, you know, we're, we're sitting there talking to him, just walking through, you know, tell us, what, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? You know, just, you know, we're, we're trying to basically get him to face this fear. And the reason that we wanted, didn't want him to face this fear, and, and, and they were, again, the, the people were incredibly patient. We let another you know, group play through, and it was you know, kind of a smaller crowd, and he kind of just you know, dinked one off the tee because I told him to just swing one, and, and he did it. But I'm talking to him, and we're coaching him up and hyping him up and telling him to you know, just focus on this and just focus on that. And, and the whole time I'm getting to face this fear. But the reason wasn't because of the fact that, like, as a parent, I'm just like, dude, this is going to be weird if you don't play. It's because I want him to know what he's capable of. I want him to know that when he faces this fear, on the other side of this fear, there is something that's going to be so much fun. And I know, as his dad, I know that Joker loves golf. This is not parents pushing their kids to play. This is a kid pushing parents to play, right? Like, this Joker wakes up before it's light outside. He's in his jammies swinging his little seven iron. Like, he goes to bed 30 minutes after we put him to bed. You can just hear him upstairs. And he's just swinging his little plastic club because we don't let him have metal clubs because he'll just destroy his entire room, right? Like, like, he loves this. And the thing that we're looking at is saying, man, I know on the other side of this fear, you are going to have a blast. And so our, our deal was, dude, just play this hole. And at the end of this hole, you can quit if you want. In fact, just do this one swing. If you can do this one swing, you can quit if you want. So he does his swing. It's like, that was awesome. All of a sudden, like, he hit it like five yards. He thought we were going to be ticked. I was like, dude, you hit your first shot in the tournament, right? So we're like throwing him up and celebrating and, and having fun, and I'm you know, giving him hugs and all this kind of stuff. He plays the first hole. He looks at me and he goes, Dad, 
I want to play the rest of the holes. <laughs> I was like, my man, you know. So he like takes off running for his mom's little legs, you know. He's just trying to like run and find her. He's like, mom, 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 I want to play the rest of the tournament. Now, now, now here's why I, I say that. Because I think for us, the reality is, is there, like, like the thing that he was afraid of was legitimate. There was a lot of people that was incredibly intimidating and, and, and somewhat unanticipated. But I knew as his father, if he faces this, what's on the other side of his fear, he is going to enjoy and love so much more. Here's my, here's my concern. That there is something or some things in our life that fear has its grips on us. It's a fear of maybe it's economic persecution. And that economic persecution is, is, is for most of us just a, simply a key indicator of security. And so there's a fear of volatility in our lives. Some of us, there's a fear that we're going to be outcast and rejected. And for some of us, the fear is that we're going to be outcast and rejected by the people that we care about the most. So there's a lot of people in your life that can make you other. But if the people who are close with you other you, it can be incredibly difficult and hurtful. For some of us, it's this sense of, it's this fear that if I actually begin to make the gospel accessible to people, because that's what it was. And the more that the gospel became accessible, the more that the gospel became transportable, and the more that the gospel became apparent, the more persecution spread up. They didn't have to go looking for it. They just told people about Jesus, and it happened, right? Peter, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Paul in 1 Timothy says that. He says, man, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. Now you have to go looking for it. He says, man, just go live out the gospel. Bring the gospel to your places and spaces. Tell people about Jesus, this incredible Savior who's accessible and universally he has died that anyone who places their faith, their hope, their trust in him can have eternal life. He says, man, you do that enough, and persecution will come, and when it comes, don't be afraid, because what happens later on the other side of that persecution is going to last much longer. Some of us, man, we still have another eight and a half holes to play, a full nine, and we're terrified to swing. And the reason is because that fear has gripped us. And so his, his encouragement is simple. It's don't be afraid. Don't let fear stop you. Not, there's nothing to be afraid of. But don't let what drives your fear drive your life. Be and make the thing that you fear the most, that you are in reverence to the most, that you trust the most, is your heavenly Father. This is how he ends the letter. He says, so be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers death will not be hurt by the second death. Here's what that means. When we die, we will all stand before God. And he's saying, so don't let what happens here on planet Earth impact, impact you in such a way that you're not living for eternity. Some people will look at this and say, well, okay, does that mean you can lose your salvation? No, because a, a suffering faith or a, a, a saving faith is a lasting faith, is a finishing faith. So he looks at me and says, hey, 
Don't let what happens here, don't let the fear that drives you drive your life. Don't let the fear that drives you drive your faith. Do not be afraid, but know that on the other side of this fear is something that's going to be so much better for so much longer. And to be honest, as Christians, I think the biggest reason that we don't live a life worthy of the gospel, that we don't live in such a way that, that warrants persecution, is because we have our fears, and our fears drive us. They prohibit us from doing anything proactively and progressively in order to make the gospel accessible to the world. And let me tell you this, I am so encouraged at the same time by some of you, by some of you who do this on a regular basis. And I'm so encouraged by some of you who you do things from just sharing Jesus with a friend or a coworker or a parent or a you know, child. And some of you, you do that. Some of you, you intentionally navigate new relationships to try to help people meet Jesus. In fact, there's a group of people in our church that I'm so encouraged by because they decided we're just going to go out on Tennessee Street at about 4 a.m. after the bars closed, and we're going to, like, cook sausage for people, which, I mean, come on, Jesus sausage. It's, sausage is Jesus backwards. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, some of you are like, okay. Man, I'm so encouraged because some of you guys, you do this. You do this, and the gospel is going forward. The kingdom of God is going forward. And if that's you, I want you to know this. Do not stop. Do not stop. Because if I do that, people expect me to do that because I am a pastor. But when you do that, it encourages the entire congregation. We need you to continue to invade the streets of our city, the places of our city, bringing the gospel with you, knowing that it's not because of exclusives. It's because it's universal. It's not because you can't attain it. It's because it's for everyone. And so we want to present it to everyone. And do not let your fear stop you. No, no, no. That later is longer. And we have a terrible time of having a myopic view of time that is so short-sighted and so nearsighted that we don't see eternity on the other side. In other words, don't be afraid to swing the club. Don't be afraid to swing the club. Because what you're going to find on the other side of that is so much better than the fear that controls you. That perhaps for the first time you'll feel freedom that comes from Jesus. I don't know what your fear is, but here's my prayer. That we would be a church who so genuinely and deeply wants people to know Jesus we won't let our fears become the limiting factors of making a great God, a holy God, and a loving God accessible to a hurt and broken world. So I'll end with this question. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What drives your fear drives your life. And if we can get to the point where we have more of a fear and a reverence and a respect for God, our obedience will go through the roof and the gospel will go forward. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the example of the church at Smyrna. I thank you for the example that honestly was set even beyond them when Polycarp, who was over that church, died in the Roman Colosseum. And after being told a number of times to declare the emperor as as God, he just simply said, I have followed my Savior for this long and my King for this long. I couldn't dare do that. I pray that we would have an unwavering, unrelenting fidelity 
to you, Jesus, that we would be afraid of you, Jesus, fear you, Jesus, but not in a fear that we're afraid of the consequence, but in a fear that we are in reverence of your incredible holiness and yet the love that you poured out for us on the cross. God, I pray that we would not be driven by our fears, but driven by you. That we would take a moment of introspection, contemplation, and say, what's that fear in my life? What's that concern in my life that keeps me from it? Is it the fear of not knowing enough? Is it the fear of not being good enough? Is it the fear of ineffectiveness? Is it the fear of, of, of being outcast? Is it the fear of security? I mean, I mean what is the fear? Because we know that anyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution. And we should not be surprised by the fiery trials. We should expect it. But we also shouldn't let it define and drive us. I pray that we would be a church like Smyrna. Who makes you, a loving God, accessible to a broken world. You did not die to be exclusive. You died so that anyone and everyone who calls on your name will be saved. And I pray that we wouldn't get so focused on this here and now, this little sliver of time that we have our lives on planet Earth, that you would give us the wisdom to see what happens later is so far longer. What happens next is so much more enjoyable that we would live now as if we're living for tomorrow. Not driven by fear, driven by love for you. So would you help us to be a church that lives a life worthy of the gospel as our lives are driven by you, King Jesus, the first the last, the one who went from death to life. And I pray that the gospel would go forward through women and men who are gathered here today, that people would know you and eternity would shift because of the work you do in and through them as they overcome the fear that captures and drives our life. Jesus, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to know what to do. The wisdom to know where we are in this and the courage to do it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.